Okay, so good afternoon, and we're here today, we're going to be doing the, today is the last Torah reading in the book of uh, Exodus, which is the book of the Torah reading of Pekude, and that's what we'll be discussing today. If we look at the first verse in the book of Pekude, it tells us, and if we look mainly in the Torah reading of Pekude, it's a lot about numbers. Numbers, accounting of what was spent in the... Uh, holy Temple while building the tabernacle. In general, as we know, there's four Torah readings that are spent discussing the tabernacle. The first two, Terum and Tetzavah, where God tells it to Moses. Then we have a little interruption of the sin of the golden calf. And then last week we began with Moses telling the Jewish people about the rules pertaining to the tabernacle and the Jewish people building it and constructing it. And this week again, we continue with the making of the garments, the actual construction, putting it together, and the tabulation of all the income and assets and how everything was spent. There's a very interesting question that I'm asked many times, and even sometimes maybe even faced on my own. If let's say you're told somebody wants to have a meeting with somebody, and they say, no, let's meet up for lunch. And the place where he wants to meet up for lunch, there's no kosher restaurants around. So he says, you know what, you just go in, you'll have uh, coffee, tea, or something that's kosher, so to speak, in the non-kosher restaurant. Should a person be meeting there, especially a person who looks Jewish and maybe has the, or that people know that he's Jewish and whatever, maybe. The question is, there's a law in the Torah, in Jewish law, which is called Maris Ayin, which people may view what the eye may see. And not everybody knows what you're doing in that restaurant. Not everybody knows why you're going in the restaurant. Nobody knows that you're just sitting there not eating. But if a person walks by and sees you sitting in the restaurant, they may think that maybe this restaurant is kosher, or even more so, they may think that you're not eating kosher. You know the story of the fellow who he, uh, the president of the synagogue that walked into a non-kosher restaurant, a non-kosher diner, and ordered a ham, you know, a full-on bay ham, you know, that comes with, uh, with an apple in its mouth and everything else. And the rabbi is standing on the outside and he looks and he sees what's going on and he sees the waiter coming out with this big, ham on the, on the platter and everything else. He walks inside, he thinks he'll stop the president from eating non-kosher, and he walks inside and says, Mr. President, how can you be sitting in a non-kosher restaurant ordering ham out of all things? He says, listen, I ordered baked apple, and this is how they serve it. <laughs> so every time we look at things, everything may have another perception of how it's done. And should be we worried, and this is the question we're going to discuss about, should be we concerned about perception? Should I say, it's that guy's problem. What should I care about what other people think? Or do I have an obligation to make sure that people shouldn't think ill about me? Do I have a responsibility that I should be careful in the things that I do that people shouldn't gossip? Or I should say, no, people are going to gossip. That's the way of the world. Tough luck, if they want to gossip about me, that's their problem. Or do I say, no, I have to be careful to do things to make sure that people don't gossip. Especially so when a person is a public figure. 
as a public figure, and today there's with social media things get expanded even worse and in, in a very terrible way. More people assume things and people make up things and people decide things based on a video that they almost saw, that they could have seen, that somebody said they saw, and all of a sudden it becomes a whole rumor and becomes a whole idea and a whole to-do. Should a person be concerned about it to make sure he avoids any type of that type of behavior? Or does a person have to not be concerned about these ideas and say, listen here, I have to, you know, do what I have to do, and it doesn't make a difference what anybody thinks. If we look at it in this week's Torah reading, we can ask three great questions or three major points that we want to discuss today by looking at this week's Torah reading. First of all, at the beginning of the Torah reading, Moshe comes along and gives an accounting of what happened. An accounting of what each one of the objects and items that were donated to the tabernacle, what they were used for, their income and expenses. So question number one is, why does Moses have to give a report? Was there a certain annual budget report he had to submit to the committee to be able to say what he spent the money on? Did anybody accuse Moses, the man of God who spoke to God himself, that he would be stifling some of the funds for himself? Why then did all of a sudden Moses have to give this whole report? Now, if he is giving the report, might as well do a proper report. What does he give a report on? On the copper and on the silver. He writes what their income was. He writes what the expenses were for. It comes to the gold. He says what the income of the gold was, but he doesn't mention what the expenses are. You'd think if somebody is worried about concern, about uh, transparency, A, either give a complete report or don't give a report at all. B, if you're giving a report, what are people more concerned about? The high-priced items. The small items, the copper, silver, big deal. The high-priced items about the gold. Not only that, you're mentioning the income, why won't you mention the expenses? It arouses more questions. And thirdly, there's one item, the washing basin, which Moshe doesn't even mention its income or expenses about. Why is it that all the other items he finds it necessary to mention the income or the expenses about? But when it comes to the washing basin, nothing of this is, nothing of this is mentioned. And this is what we look at this week's Torah reading, especially that it's mentioned about, it looks like more of a budget report or an annual report of what happened, and the question is why? What's the need for all of this? The first part of the Torah reading especially gives us all these questions just by the name of the Torah reading. If you look at the words Ela, that's the first word of the Torah, the second word is Pikudei, these are the numbers. This means I'm about to give you an accounting. Why give me an accounting to begin with? One of the great commentators on the, to on the Torah asks, the Orachayim, which is a uh, 18th century scholar talks about and says, why would it even tell us an accounting? There's a very well-known Talmud that says that the blessing of God is only found by something that's not counted, something that's naked from the eye. That means you don't see it. If you show off and you flaunt what you have, blessing doesn't rest on it. And if you keep on counting it, there's also something that a blessing doesn't come to. So why would Moses go and count it? And then if you keep on counting it, as you can see, where he talks about the accounting of the gold and so on, he talks about the income, but he doesn't say the expenses. The silver and the copper, he mentions the, as we mentioned, he mentions the income and expenses, but the gold, no income and expenses. So why, again, would Moses talk about something which is seemingly giving us a partial enumeration, and if he's into the concept of enumerating everything and giving evidence of transparency, say everything, gold, silver, and copper. And again, why then the washing basin is, is not mentioned out of all of them. When we look at the different items that were made, especially about the copper, 
You talk about the copper that was mentioned. It tells us all the vessels that were made out of copper. One of the things that we, it's interesting to note, we mentioned this on Shabbos, was that the copper washing basin what was made from the copper of the mirror of the women's uh, mirrors. Moshe doesn't mention that in the enumeration and the tabulation. He doesn't even mention how the washing basin was made. Some want to suggest, the Abarbanel says, being that everything else was donated by the men and this copper was from the women, from the mirrors, so therefore he didn't count it in the tabulation because it wasn't, so to speak, a lump sum item, it was a specific item. But still in all. One of the things that we find, that the questions, and this basically encapsulates the entire question, is how is it in general that even if we want to say that the reason why Moshe made his tabulation was that the Jewish people shouldn't accuse that he's pocketing half of the money. How is it possible that Moshe, that they should accuse Moshe, who Moshe was a person who we know was a man of God, a person who was a Mount Sinai, he brought them out of Egypt, he took everything with them, did everything for them. Why would they right away accuse him? So what did Moshe do? An interesting thing. We find in a little snippet in this week's Torah reading, right in the beginning, that who was his assistant in making this tabulation was Isamar, the son of Aaron Akoi, the younger son of Aaron. Isamar was the one that helped, so to speak, was the second signature on the checks. He was the second person to watch what was going on. Reason being, the Talmud explains, that Moshe didn't want to be the only one to say that people shouldn't have any doubt. So therefore, he took Isamar, that he should be the second person, and they would count it together. So like this, there was no doubt of what was happening there at the time. In fact, there's a halacha that's taken from this, that when it comes to public communal funds, there should be two people in charge of the communal funds, so it shouldn't arouse doubt about the person who's collecting the money, that he's pocketing the money, so two people should be responsible to be counting, to look over the funds, and to make sure that the funds are used in the proper way, and that because people should not be accused that they're using it for their own benefit. But the question is, again, if Moshe was a person where God himself says, there's nobody else I trust like Moses, why then would somebody accuse Moses? But the Talmud says a very interesting thing. Two weeks ago, we read about, after the Jewish people sinned with the golden calf, that Moshe, when he would get walked to, he had a special you know, aura of godliness on him, and as he would walk to his tent, because he separated it from the Jewish people after they sinned with the golden calf, people would look and watch and see where Moshe is going. And this was a behavior that went on for the next 40 years as the Jewish people traveled in the desert, that whenever Moses would get up and walk from the tabernacle to his tent, everybody would go out to the entrance of their tent and watch Moshe go to, their, to his own home, out of respect. That's one opinion. That it says that they would follow Moshe and watch as he would walk to his tent out of respect. Another opinion says, in a derogatory term, that the Leitzonei Hador literally means the clowns of the generation, but can also be the mockers, the scoffers. They would look at Moses and say, Ah, oh, look at Moses, he looks very well for his age. Look at his neck, it's very, you know, it's very, um, he doesn't look famished, he looks like a very well-suited individual. The other one would answer, Yeah, where do you think he got all that money from? He was in charge of building the tabernacle. So Moses says, You know what? I'll show you an accounting. Every penny is accounted for. Nothing that I keep. So that the scoffers of the generation shouldn't be able to come along to Moses and say, you pocketed the money. 
But the question is, how is it possible that there should even be such scoffers? You're talking about a person who came, gave them the Ten Commandments, do not steal. He was the one that was on Mount Sinai, did everything for the Jewish people you can think of, put his life on the line in more ways than one, and that people should accuse him of stealing. So the truth is that Moses was not obligated to make this tabulation. Moses went beyond the letter of the law to be able to stand in a way that people should not have any type of accusation in any shape or form to think that he had anything to do with pocketing any of the money. And Moses went, as we know, because of this going beyond the letter of the law, the Mishnah, when it talks about donating to the Holy Temple and the people that were the treasurers that were in charge of the building of the Holy Temple, the Mishnah tells us in Shkalim that the person who was responsible for the, the treasure of the Holy Temple should not go into the Holy Temple with a garment with pockets or with a shoe that has place to hide money or in anything that it can look like that he's pocketing or putting the money in any secret pocket. Why? <coughs> so that people should not accuse him. He should walk out, out of there, as there's a terminology which is found concerning the tribes of God are moving that God tells them that they're going to have to go to war. And only then will they be able to become clean. So he says a person should always be clean before God and before the Jewish people. That means nobody should be able to point any fingers at him. Don't put yourself in a predicament that people can point fingers on you. Especially when we talk about this concept of being clean. What does it mean clean? That a person should always do things even beyond the letter of the law to be able to show that he did not do anything that anybody can accuse him of. Even though technically you did nothing wrong, and technically you are doing nothing wrong. For example, the treasurer went into the Holy Temple. What's wrong if he went in with pockets as long as he doesn't put anything in his pocket? Mm -hmm. But the very fact that somebody can accuse you of doing something wrong, don't put yourself in that situation that people can accuse you. Put, don't allow yourself to be removed from any doubts that nobody can point any fingers and say you were the one. In fact, we find, we read it in last week's Haftorah, when they were doing renovations on the first temple, this is where the first pushka came about, that they were then, they, because people shouldn't accuse the Kohanim of pocketing the money that they needed for the building of the temple, they put a box on the side of the altar where people were able to put money on, and then two Kohanim together would go and count the money and use it for renovations. But it says, Ki they trusted them that they would use the money accordingly. That means there's two things. There's one situation where even though people trust you, but still in all, you should be able to, for the, your benefit, put yourself in a situation that everybody should know that what you're doing is right. Don't allow people to accuse you or put yourself in a predicament that people should accuse you. One of the things that people want to ex explain and understand is why would Moses even have to put himself in such a situation? Why was it automatically, if according to Jewish law, a person technically doesn't have to give an accounting and doesn't have to give a, uh, uh, you know, a full budget to show what happened, what they used the money for? Only don't do it to begin with. Why Moses found it necessary to show a budget review and what he spent every penny on? Because over here, there was another interesting tidbit over here. Moshe was the only, so to speak, poor Jew amongst the Jews at first. When all the Jews were busy collecting all the booty from the sea, where was Moshe? He was busy schlepping Joseph and all the other tribes. He was busy getting Joseph. While all the Jews were busy collecting from all the Egyptians' money while they left Egypt, Moshe was busy taking care of the Jews. So he was the only one that didn't get any money. 
But what happened was, when God told Moses to carve out a second set of tablets, and he says, Psalucha, you carve out those set of tablets, he used the terminology, carve out for yourself. What happens when you carve something out? There's leftovers, right? There's all those, there's all those leftovers. Those leftovers from what was it? Sapphire. It was very expensive. And that's where Moshe became very wealthy from because he was able to keep the leftovers of whatever was carved out from the sapphire stones. And that's where Moshe made his money from. But the show, so Moshe was the only person, so to speak, that people could have said he pocketed money because he didn't have any money. So therefore Moshe wanted to show, in this case as well, here, you look, every single penny is accounted for, I kept nothing for myself. But the bottom line is we find that in Jewish law, that with the treasurer, when it comes to a charity, there should be two people who are the treasurers to make sure that no money is siphoned off for other reasons. But there is no obligation to afterwards show a budget review because people generally trust if they give to a charity that it will be spent the right way. It's only be able to avoid people uh, accusing people of keeping the money for themselves. So therefore, you should have two people on the account. Two people should be responsible when it comes to handling out the money for charities. But what do we see over here that we see in Moshe's stringency? Two things. Number one is avoid problems. To avoid people gossiping and people talking about you, avoid and clear yourself, your own conscience, that nobody should be able to say and accuse you of wrongdoing. That's number one. Number two is even more so, even if you've cleared yourself, you want to make sure that in any shape or form there's nobody that's going to be able to accuse you in any way later on to say that something happened. They say a story of... Um, the father of the Rothschilds, Mayor Anshul Rothschild. Mayor Anshul Rothschild was one of the first, uh, he was the first Rothschild before he went into banking and hadn't made so much money. He was an individual who was worked in one of the great Hasidic masters' homes in the name, uh, in the home of Rabbi Tzvi who was known, a very well-known Hasidic scholar, rabbi of the city. His children later on became the rabbi of Nicholsburg, whatever it may be, students of the Maggot of Mizrach. This is in the early 17th century, 18th century. And Rameir Anshul worked in his home. And one time, it was Erev Pesach, they were cleaning the house. And he opened up one of his drawers where he kept a dowry for his daughter of 500 gold coins and they saw was missing. Now, being that Rameir Anshul was a caretaker in the house, all eyes were saying that maybe he took it. Nobody said it because nobody wanted to accuse him. But they were looking at him. So he said, you know what? I took it. But unfortunately, I don't have the money to pay you back at once. If you give me some time, I'll pay it back. And over the next few months, he was paying back that 500 gold coins. A month later, one of the neighboring uh, bars noticed that all of a sudden, this drunken peasant is buying drinks for, on the house for everybody. This guy who didn't have a dime to his name is all of a sudden buying uh, everybody drinks on the house and paying top dollar. So while he was drunk, somebody asked him, how did you make so much money recently? So he says, well, my wife works in the rabbi's house, and she was able to find a nice little treasure, and that's what I'm spending it on. Word got back to the rabbi and said that this is where the money, who stole the money? He called Mayor Anshul and said, Mayor Anshul, why didn't you tell me that this is what happened? Why didn't you tell me that this is where the money went? Why did you say that you took the money when really you did not? So he says, listen here, Mayor Angel said, I knew you were going to accuse me. And I knew everybody was looking at me. So instead, and I saw the heartache that was going through the rabbi that he lost his dowry that he invested so much in. I decided 
Let me say that it was me. Everybody will be calm. I'll come clean. And if I can pay it, I pay it. When the rabbi heard such unbelievable sincerity of a Jew, he gave him a blessing that he should be wealthy. And with that, he opened up one store and a bank, and later on, and that was the beginning of the Rothschild family. But what we see over here is, the beautiful thing is that when we're talking about a person, especially any type of person, but any individual who can be remotely accused of doing something wrong, especially a great scholar, especially an individual who has people look up to, so to speak, how they have to be careful to make sure not to cause a desecration of God's name. And if it's only even going to be an excuse, and even though you can defend yourself, and you're 100% right, you did nothing wrong. But if the perception is everything. And if the perception will mean that this will cause a desecration of God's name, we have to be careful in the greatest remote way. And therefore, this is what Moshe did. If we go back to our original question, should I go into a store and to a restaurant where even though I'm only having a coffee and nobody, it's nobody's business what I'm doing there if I'm a lunch meeting, if I'm eating and sleeping, but if the perception is going to look like that this rabbi or this religious Jew or this person who's Jewish is eating in a non-kosher restaurant, you should avoid it at all costs. Why? Because perception is everything. And even though the perception may be and even though halachically, if a person is going to be a question of a financial loss, you're allowed to do it. There's all different leniencies. And there may be a lot of leniencies. But if perception is going to mean that this is what happens, it's the wrong thing to do. I remember hearing a story about a person who owned a Jewish company. And he actually, it's just an interesting thing. Like B&H, for example. If you listen to their ads, all their ads say, closed Friday afternoon on Saturday. Why do they have to write it in their ad? One reason is because they don't want people showing up. But another reason is, because they don't want to have you have a perception that they're open on Shabbat. Right. They even close their website. The story is that there was a fellow, his name was Ramir Zeiler. He was a big fellow in textiles. And he would go every single year to the textile uh, show in, uh, I forget where it was, in, I think in the Netherlands, in one of those places in Europe. And he would have a booth there, and of course it was closed for Shabbos. And they would just close the booth for Shabbos, even though they had to pay for to have it there on Shabbos, but they, because Sunday they were open and Friday they were open. The Rebbe asked them once, what did they do about their booth for Shabbos? So they said they closed it on Shabbos, of course. So the Rebbe said, do you have a sign? It says, on Shabbos, they have a sign. It says, it will be good for you if you put the sign Wednesday afternoon. So like this, people know that you're going to be closed on Shabbos, so they can make their purchases before Shabbos as well. So he says the story that once he had a sign, they're sitting there Wednesday afternoon, that it says that it's going to be closed on Shabbos, and an old Jew walks by. He didn't know it's a Jew, the old guy walks by and says, what do you mean closed, Saturday, closed Shabbos? What are you, you closed for? She says, because it's Shabbos. She says, I went through Hitler, and ever since then I don't believe in God, and all that stuff that he, you know, he went through. He says, oh, you're Jewish, and you put on tefillin. He was able to put on tefillin with the Jew, and he saw that just putting up that sign, that they're closed on Shabbos already from Wednesday, attracted more Jewish people to understand and realize and appreciate our Judaism. So when we don't compromise on who we are, not only are we not causing that there should be, God forbid, a desecration of God's name, but on the contrary, it teaches people that they should learn more about godliness. Well, let's move back to the concept that we're talking about today. So when we go back to Moses, Moses, in our case, Moshe, what does he do? He makes sure he goes to the fullest strength when it comes to the building of the, building of the tabernacle. Moshe makes sure that as soon as the tabernacle is complete, he submits a report. This is what we spent. This is the income. This is the assets. But the question still remains... If you're submitting a report, what's worse than submitting a report? 
is a half-batched report. That means you're hiding something. If you're submitting a report of saying what you spent the money on, write all the income and the expenses. Why doesn't he put the gold in? He only puts the silver. And he only puts the copper. So if we look over here, an interesting thing that happens. In the, when he talks about everything that was donated, so he talks about the gold, and there were 1,775 shekel of silver that was left over. And they were thinking, what did he use it for? And all of a sudden, Moshe gets stopped, and he says, what did I use that extra 1,775 shekel for? And the commentaries explain that a medrash came from heaven and said, those 1,775 shekel were used for the brackets on top of the, of the beams. And the kibaskol on the voice of heaven said, you should know that every single place where Moshe has trusted that he used every single penny for the right, for the right reasons. So if we see that for every single item was accounted for, that even the 1,775 shekel that he lost a moment for, he had a, he had a memory relapse, where it went, and the voice of heaven announced where it went. Why doesn't he say what the gold went for? Why doesn't he announce what the gold was for? Why doesn't he tell us what the gold was for? So if we talk about the people that were accusing Moshe, and we talk about all the different accusations, what about these people who are the accusers? Who are they that they were accusing things for? So why would they accuse Moses? So one of the things that we find in general, there are certain laws in the Torah that it says that if you are an observer of watching such a type of event happen, you have an obligation that you see a desecration of God's name, you've got to step up to the plate and do something about it. Where do we see such an example? Pinchas was a person who observed a terrible atrocity and, a, and an abrogation of God's name. He stepped up to the plate, took the action in his own hand. The Talmud tells us in the Jewish law, it's brought that if you see a Kohen or somebody who is putting his hand in the pocket of holy items of charity, you got to step up to the plate and stop that person. What is this telling us? Who are the people that the Talmud uses that used to make fun and say, that Moses was stealing. Who are they? How do we describe them? The scoffers. What does it mean, the scoffers? <coughs> and in the first chapter of Tanya, it explains that there is wildness, there's mockery, ego, idle talk. These are things which come from the evil inclination. These are things that cause a person to fall into the greatest shallow levels and doing things that are never desirable. And one of them are scoffers, satire. You know, satire, humor has a place. But sometimes also satire is also in an irresponsible place. And one thing satire is a place where it doesn't belong is when it comes to satire about great and holy people. Not everything in life is a joke. Not everything in life can we make into satire. If you think about it, who is the first individual who tried to use satire to demise, to defame, and to debase somebody? Korach. Korach came and we made his coup against Moshe. We're going to learn about it in the book of Numbers. Korach comes along and says, hey, this guy Moses, you think he's a great guy? Look at all these laws he's making that don't make sense, mixing things together. You're not allowed to mix wool and linen, you're not allowed to mix fruit, you're not allowed to mix this. And then it comes along, you already finished working so hard with your wheat and you work so hard. And who do you have to give your first wheat to? To the Kohen. Who's the Kohen? Moshe's brother. 
You see what Korach came along and said? Korach tried to make a whole joke out of the whole laws that are there. And what happened to Korach's end? It was all about rebelling against Moshe, making fun of godliness, making fun of awesomeness of God, making fun of the Torah. Even take the next step, Miriam, Moshe's sister. Every one of the six remembrance we talk about, what did, Mo, what did Miriam do? And one of the things that we say is, remember what happened to Miriam while she was in the desert. What did Miriam do wrong? She gossiped. She was able to talk about Moshe's wife. Whether she was wrong, right, or doesn't make a difference. But the very fact that she found it necessary to talk about somebody else, the Torah reminds us this is what the beginning of something is which is not good. And therefore we have to remember that whenever we talk about somebody else, it's not about who she spoke about. It's what happened to her because of speaking. Because she spoke about somebody else, she became leprosy. That means she brought a weakness to herself. If your whole identity is talking about other people, then what does that show about you? If your whole identity is making fun of everything that's holy, what does that say about you? So step number one that we learn from this is that when we talk about idle talk or gossiping or talking slandering, not only does it hurt the person you're talking about, but even more importantly, it hurts the person who is speaking. Because the moment you start speaking nonsense about others, you speak nonsense about yourself, you speak nonsense about or you're saying slander or gossiping, you put yourself in a level, in a circle of area, which this is not, put it, let's put it this way, not from the greatest people. So we can understand that these scoffers, and why the Torah uses the terminology about the scoffers, is to tell us that these people were on a low level to be able to look at everything as satire. And ultimately what that caused them to be is that it leads them to not good places. So step number one, we learn about Yes, from the person who's being accused. And we have to take the proper steps not to be accused, to be able to avoid any type of misconceptions, which was what Moses did, and that's why he gave an accounting. But step number two, for a person who does accuse, ask yourself, when I'm accusing or speaking about somebody else, why am I doing that? What circle am I putting myself in? What area of life am I surrounding myself with? Is it because I'm scoffing at things that are holy? Is it because I have nothing to do, so I talk about debasing other people? Why do I want to even talk about, why is that my conversation? And that will help us avoid these pitfalls of creating acrimony and animosity about these type of things. Because remember, all the fights start from a false rumor or a perception about somebody. So one, we have to be careful that people shouldn't perceive us wrongly. But two, even if we do perceive somebody wrongly, we shouldn't be talking about it. But let's go to the next step, which we're talking about Moses being transparent. We started saying Moses being transparent, and therefore he accounted for the gold, the silver, and the copper. But the gold, he only spoke about the income, not the expenses. And our question was why. And over here, one of the commentators explained, an interesting Rabdanus and Eibschitz, who was known for his wit, says as follows. He says the gold, and this is an interesting thing, he says the gold, who donates gold? The wealthy people. Who donates copper and silver? Middle class people. Who looks to see how every penny is spent? People who are concerned about how every penny is spent by themselves. Said, I gave that guy $100. How is he spending that money? But people that are giving a million dollars really couldn't care less. Why? Because they have the ability, because they don't want people looking at their money, so they don't look at other people's money. The same idea is also over here he wants to say. He says the gold 
The people who gave the gold couldn't care less where the money was given. So Moshe didn't have to worry about people accusing him of wrongdoing. While the silver and the copper were from, let's say, the people who were counting every penny. So therefore he showed them, I count every penny of yours as well. Some want to say that the reason why he didn't show an expense of the gold, the Kliyakar tells us, the reason why he didn't want to say the expense of the gold was because they hadn't yet finished using it. Because they were still making the garments and there was still gold that had to be used for it. So therefore, he didn't want to mention how much the gold was. So therefore, he doesn't say the expenses of the gold, he only says the income of the gold. Still in all, the question still stands. And as we mentioned before, if God was so careful to even announce where every single level of silver and gold was used, to the extent that a voice of heaven came out to say, Moshe's honest in every single thing, why did Moshe either wait until you finished making the garments to say what your expenses are, or don't even mention the income? Why mention the income without the expenses? And over here, the Lubavitcher Rebbe comes and tells us an amazing thing. He says, in fact, Moshe did not avoid mentioning the expenses. By mentioning the income, he said clearly what the expenses are. He says as follows. How much gold came in? He says, the amount of gold that came in was 29 kikar, 730 shekel. That's how much gold came in. If you make an accounting of how much gold was used in the tabernacle, it's probably double the amount that came in. That means if you look at the amount of gold that came in and look at the amount of things that had gold in the Holy Temple, the ark was made out of two boxes of gold with a top of gold with a crubim of gold. Just the actual menorah was an entire kikar of solid gold. Every single one of the beams was, was coated in gold. Every single one of the brackets was gold. And the table was gold. The menorah was gold. Everything was gold. There was gold dripping all over the place. If you take in a, if you want to just like simple math, will tell you that the amount of gold that came in as the income didn't add up to the amount that was needed. That means there wasn't enough gold. So we're with the leftover gold. What did they do with the leftover gold? And over here is what Moshe comes along and says. All the gold that came in was only how much? 900, uh, what was it? 920 kikar, 700 and, th- uh, 700 and, and 730. You know who paid for the rest? I did. He doesn't have to say that, but he says, this is only the income. You can see how much there is gold for yourself. You didn't cover all the gold. So he's announcing this is all the gold that came in, but don't worry, it was all covered. And Moshe was a wealthy man, and he was the one that paid for it from his own pocket. <laughs> so therefore, Moshe had no need to say the expense because any Jew looking at the tabernacle sees this is less than what came, this is more than what came in. Where did they get it from? Somebody else had to cover the difference. I'm an anonymous donor. I don't have to say who. But you can see without any, to the naked eye, everybody was obvious to see that there was more than five tons of gold used in, this, in the actual building of the tabernacle. The last question was, why did Moses not mention the washing basin in the copper accounting? And over here comes a very interesting, beautiful lesson that we can learn from it. How was the washing basin made, we mentioned? From the mirrors that the Jewish women used. What was these mirrors initially used for? Where did they have these mirrors? The Talmud tells us a very fascinating fact. The Jewish men would come home very tired and hungry during the time of the working of Egypt, of 210 years of Egypt. And they weren't interested in procreating children at the time. Because they said, what do we need to bring more children into the slavery? 
It is the Jewish women that with these mirrors, they beautify themselves. And when their husbands came home, that they should look attractive for their husbands. That their husbands should find them desirable to have children. And because of them, they created an entire nation that was able to go out of Egypt. These mirrors weren't just mirrors. These mirrors showed on the intimate closeness relationship that the husband and wife had that brought about a generation of Jewish people. Over here, Moshe was giving a lesson to the Jewish people of what it means Jewish intimacy. What it means intimacy, period. That not everything has to be announced. Not everything has to be on the table. In fact, the most sacred, holy, special things are reserved for places you don't see. The most sacred type of relationship is not one that's flaunted on every social media, but the ones that are reserved to the bedroom. This sacred relationship that a person has, that a husband and a wife have, which brings about the future of the Jewish people in Jewish law is the most holiest place in your house. The bedroom is the holy of holies. Every single part of the home is compared to another part of the temple. And the bedroom is the holy of holies because that's the most sacred part of the home. Because the relationship that a husband and wife have is the holiest part in the relationship, the holiest part of the marriage, the holiest part that exists in the world. And therefore Moshe says, I'm not looking to announce and to say the sponsors of the tabernacle. When it comes to real beauty, real change is what you don't see. Real change and real beauty is what's behind the door, not what's in front of the door. All these people that flaunt the way they're looking, how they're hugging and everything else, ask those people what a true relationship is, not what you see is all the filters that they put on the, on the social media, but really what's hiding behind the door. That's where true beauty is. And that's the message what Moshe was giving to the Jewish people. That the true beauty of the Jewish people is what we don't see. The true beauty and the courage of the Jewish people is not what's accounted for, is not what's mentioned. And over here it takes it even a step further. What was the washing basin used for? It was for the Kohanim and the Levim when they prepared themselves before washing, before entering the Holy Temple. They had to wash their hands and feet, and that's what the washing basin was used for. Over here, a person's able to take something, a mirror, that was used for the woman to beautify herself. Now, the beauty of the woman can be go two ways. It can encourage the evil inclination to do things and to attract them to doing maybe not the right thing. But they were able to take their beauty and their encouragement and the lust, so to speak, of the evil inclination and utilize it to build the Jewish people. This same mirror was used as a washing basin. So when a Kohen walks into the Holy Temple, takes and washes his hands and feet, meaning cleanses himself from the impurities of the world, prepares himself to bring the sacrifice. That means he is taking his lust, his ideology, and all the desires of the outside world and dedicates it to God. That is the greatest level. That's the epitome of what the Holy Temple was all about. Transformation of the evil inclination. Transformation of our desires from something, impulse of something not wanted, to something which is holy. This is symbolized by the washing basin. The cleansing of the hands and feet that have to deal with the world and dedicating it now to holiness. Telling the Jewish people, that even though it looks like only and not even doing a mitzvah, the washing of the hands and feet was a preparation of the mitzvah. But when we prepare ourselves properly to serve God, when we recognize and put ourselves in a certain type of mode to be able to remove, as washing means to remove the 
nonsense of the world, to remove the illnesses of the world, to remove the, so to speak, in the words of the Zohar, Zuhama, the sweat, the disgusting nature of the world, that we are conscious in our mind and our heart, that we recognize who we are, what we stand for, that every single facet of our life, it's not about showing off, it's about the most intimate and creating a bond with God. And that is done by what? By washing our hands, removing the impurities. And then we walk into the holy temple and we can bring about the greatest glory of God. The Zohar says that when a Jew has, the word is called in the Zohar, iskafia, when we bend our evil inclination, when we don't fall to desires of our evil inclination, to the lust and the temptations of our evil inclination, and we struggle and we fight against our evil inclination, then the greatest light of God is brought into this world. So it's not always about smooth sailing. It's the struggle that brings the light. It's the very fact that we are able to not be influenced by our evil inclination to bring about the light into the world. And that ultimately is our job and will bring the light into the world. I should call you.